Scripture reading for this morning comes from Acts chapter 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, so usually this, uh, this scripture will be talked about because it's, it's the ascension of Jesus. So it will be read around um, the day of ascension just before our Pentecost. Or we'll use it to talk about the Great Commission or um, something like that or the return of Jesus. Today I'm going to use it as a step up to talk about the church's relation to Israel. I felt led to speak about this a couple of weeks ago as the current uh, situation in the land is so, uh, so tense and of course full of uh, war and not, and not peace. It's an escalation of an ongoing conflict. And it's getting so much attention in the news that I thought it would be good to um, teach about this. Uh, quick question, can you turn the monitor down here? Or just off? Yeah, thanks. I quickly realized that we need to pray for this, but honestly, I do not always know how to pray for this because it's so complicated. And it's so tense and it's so full of, of emotions and so full of um, different stories surrounding this. And it's so difficult. So what do we, how do we think about this? How do we pray about this? What should we say about this? It's a conflict over the land where the majority of biblical history is playing out. And so, yes, this conflict captures our attention more than most other conflicts do, unless they're super, super close to home. I remember a number of years ago, before I was in this church, I had to do announcements and prayers in the, in the service. And it was in a time that was also a, a, a milder escalation of, the, of this uh, conflict. But still, it was, uh, stuff was happening. And the church leadership asked me, yeah, when you do announcements, can you pray for the peace of Jerusalem? And so I'm like, okay, cool, I'll, I'll, I'll get up. And as I was standing there, I realized, I don't know what to pray. <laughs> I was like... Lord, I pray for the peace of Jerusalem, that there may be peace in Jerusalem. Amen. <laughs> I didn't know. I, I, I really, because it feels like anything you say about this has kind of two sides, and someone will be offended, or someone will be um, uh, saying, yeah, but what about this, and what about that, and what about that? And so... If you're anything like me, you find it difficult to have nuanced thoughts about what is going on. You're unsure what to think about what is going on. And as a Christian, how to, how to think about how to feel about it, how to pray about it. It's the current escalation of this ongoing conflict. Kind of came up, of course, the 7th of October, this brutal terroristic attack from Hamas. Um, and the following response to Israel, which, of, of Israel, which is still going on, it's getting worldwide attention, like constant, uh, constant attention. There's opinions flying around and there's stories and narratives flying around. What I wanted to do today is not necessarily an elaborate reflection on the current situation, but try to look at a bigger picture of the church's relationship to, to Israel. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the conflict here, but what I, my purpose today is not to give 
answers, not to give you a sort of here's how to think about it, here's what's going on, what God's doing and everything. No, I, I want to give a bigger picture. And my, my purpose is really to, to enable you to look at this situation and, and be able to think about it as an ambassador of God's kingdom um, and to, to have a bit more understanding what it means when you pray for the peace of Jerusalem. What exactly are you, are you praying for then? So that's, that's kind of my end goal. Because um, as Christians... You, you know, maybe wondering, like, okay, what should I think about this conflict now in the Middle East? And my short answer to this is, we should think about this in a nuanced way. <laughs> in a nuanced way. It's not like, should I be pro this or pro that? Or the, I, My answer would be, let, let's think about this in a nuanced way. It's not simplistic. It's not politically correct. But nuanced. And in my... My, the long answer is basically the rest of this message. Uh, it will be a longer message than normally. Normally we teach about half an hour. Today is going to be at least 45 minutes. Um, and it, it's my attempt to a nuanced response. And it's, it's, it's not really fulfilling. It's <laughs> uh, what I set it out to do. Because I had to cut a lot of stuff out. And anything um, I've discovered in my, my reading, in my preparation for this, which took a couple of weeks, that every layer deeper you hit, you also hit, uh, like you think like, oh, now I've got a nuanced way to think about it. And then like, oh, no, it's more complicated. And then you go deeper and then you're like, oh, now I've, now I've hit the nuance. And then it's even more complicated. It's, it's, <laughs> it is such a complex story that um, I can't do justice to every little li little detail of, of history and of the current situation. And I don't want to attempt to, but I do want to kind of help you to, to discover a Christian response uh, in this time that I hope will help you. A um, couple of disclaimers. <laughs> Best messages start with a few disclaimers. Uh, the first one is my response is, uh, this is far these are far from my uh, final words on the topic. Um, I, I do feel... Uh, in the right place to, to teach about it because I've studied it, I've read about it, I've listened to it, like interviews and stuff and everything. So I do feel prepared for today, but it's uh, there's a lot more to say about it. Um, I might say something that upsets you, uh, you know. I, I could actually give this disclaimer every Sunday. Uh, it's not because I'm rude or anything. It's just that, like, with anything with the Christian faith, and especially with this, there's different ways people are thinking about it. And something that I might say might upset you, uh, surprise you, maybe confuse you. I'm very open to conversation about this. Uh, and it's also completely all right to disagree uh, and still feel very welcome in this, uh, in this church. Um, because of the time I have today, I will miss a lot of details. Next disclaimer is, uh, it will feel a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon. So I will use scripture and I will explain scripture, but it's, it's, it's a little bit more like a lecture than a, a typical Sunday morning sermon. Um, but my, I do think part of a teach, like a Bible teacher's responsibility is to help people to, give a, to, to look at... Um, life right now in our world right now from a biblical framework and so that's that's my purpose uh, and lastly i've checked the content of the message with several people in our leadership team that feel um very connected like our broader leadership team that feel very connected to the situation also know a lot and also um have looked or are looking at the different sides of the story and so their their comments have been very uh, either confirming or just very helpful and corrective um which uh, really helped me to prepare all right Starting off, when we talk about Israel, what are we talking about? What do people mean when they say we should support Israel, we should care about Israel, we should have attention for Israel? What are people talking about? The people, the land, or the nation? These are three different things that we can all speak of um, with the same word, Israel. And so when Usually when I'm meeting new people that want to talk about this, I'm asking, what do you mean with Israel? What should we be supporting then when you say we should support Israel? Now, of course, the three are connected, um, but 
um, I think when we want to hit some nuance in this message, um, it's important to discuss them first separately and then kind of look at the complete picture. So I hope that <laughs> this way uh, will help you. So we'll start with the people, the, um, the people of Israel, or maybe just known as the, the Jewish people in this time. The Jewish people play a very significant part in God's long-term redemption plan. God chose the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Jacob who is also called Israel, to be the people to whom he himself would reveal himself and work out his broader plan to redeem the whole of humanity. Israel was a people set apart by God as a special possession for a special purpose. To the people of Israel was given the law and the kingdom and the prophets and the promises and the temple and as a fulfillment of all that preparation, all those promises and all that prophecy, they received the Messiah, Jesus Christ, or as uh, Messianic Jews would say now, Yeshua HaMashiach. Sadly, in the first century, most of the Jews, or many of the Jews, did not accept Jesus as their long-expected Messiah and King. They expected a different Messiah. They expected a, a more militant Messiah that would drive out the Roman occupation and restore the kingdom of Israel to the glory days of Solomon. Even the disciples in their comments here at the ascension scene, seem to still have this expectation that, you know, after the crucifixion and after the resurrection, then Jesus would restore the kingdom of Israel. That's what they ask. Are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Only a remnant of believing Jews began to form the first Christian church that began to live out the mission that Jesus had given them here at the scene of ascension. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all of Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This was Jesus' answer to the question of the disciples if he was going to restore the kingdom of Israel. They thought, now that you have resurrected from the dead and have kind of proved that nothing can stop you, are we now going to start a real fight? Are we now going to drive out the Rome? Finally, all the talk about, you know, who God really is and how to be people of the kingdom. That must have all been preparation, right, for some war. Let's go. Like, now that you've resurrected from the dead, like, we can see it. We've got the power. We've got We're ready. We're ready for the fight. Are we going to start the true fight right now? And Jesus' answer was yes and no. <laughs> yes. The true fight is going to start right now. Absolutely. You guys will continue this mission of the kingdom. But no, it's not going to be an earthly kingdom. It's not going to be a kingdom like in the time of Solomon. It's going to be an unseen kingdom that will expand all over the world. A kingdom that every person from every nation is invited into. And you're going to tell them. You're going to... Take this message, you're going to take this good news, you're going to make it worldwide good news. You're going to start here in Jerusalem, then you go to the rest of Judea, even in Samaria, those people that you really don't like, and then onwards to the ends of the earth, even the unknown ends to the earth, because they didn't know how big the earth was. The big theology question that people ask here is... Has then this church replaced Israel? My personal opinion here is no. Because replacement assumes disposal. If you say that the church has replaced Israel, that means that Israel is no longer meaningful. It's, it's disposed. It's put it in the trash. And this is how people throughout history have kind of handled this. I don't believe that God has disposed of the Jews or of the people of Israel and chosen the church instead. There maintains a special relationship and a special purpose for the Jews in God's plan. Now, some people think that they know exactly what that will look like. Uh, I, I don't. <laughs> I don't think that. Uh, but I have some ideas that I will share. Um, they also maintain special promises for the Jews in the New Testament, most notably in Paul's discussion of this topic in Romans 9 to 11. 
which he concludes with a prophetic statement. Uh, it said here in uh, Romans 11, verse 11 to 15. So I ask that they stumble, they is the Jewish people that he is also a part of, that they stumble in order that they might fall. By no means. Rather through their trespass, so not believing in the Messiah, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. By the way, that's most of us. Um, so as to make Israel jealous. More on that later. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Hmm? Now, I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch uh, then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So he's speaking to the church in Rome here, consisting actually mostly, probably mostly of Jews, but also uh, non-Jews or Gentiles. And he says here to the Gentiles, believers, that they should honor the deeply Jewish roots of the gospel. They should honor um, where this gospel came from, who Jesus is, and that he stands in the tradition of the Old Testament and the salvation history of God with the, the Jewish people or the Hebrew people or the people of Israel. They all kind of mean the same thing, but at different times, I'm not going to explain. Uh, <laughs> just <laughs> um, And that he believes that the acceptance of uh, Jesus as the Messiah by the Gentiles will in the end lead to a new revival amongst the Jewish people. This many understand to be a final Jewish revival shortly before the second coming of Jesus. And this is why Paul says, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And he's speaking about the final resurrection there. So the church is then not a replacement of Israel. However, the church is a fulfillment of Israel. Just as Jesus did not come to replace the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it, the church fulfills the calling of Israel as the people of God. But, and this is something that Paul makes very clear, the church stands firmly on the foundation of Israel as the people of God, as, as the people that God has revealed himself to. Paul describes it as a branch that's crafted onto a root. So he'll continue in verse 17 and 18. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were crafted uh, in among the others and now share the nourish nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, um, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So... It is the same that uh, sorry. It's a shame that the, that the church and the Jews are often talked about so separately, as if they are at odds with each other. Because really, there are so many Messianic Jews that are part of uh, the church. And so, when we talk about the relationship between the church and Israel, we do need to discuss also the history of anti-Semitism. Um, it's a shame, really, that covers. Europe and many other parts of the world that the Jewish people for so many centuries um, have endured such hate. It's interesting towards the end of his life the reformer Luther wrote a book where he made some very crass and very hateful comments about Jewish people because he was angry that they did not still now even that you know the real gospel came out according to him um, they still rejected Jesus. And so these writings, um, and, and there's also reasons why he did that, and there's, there's contextual reasons why he did that, and there's, I think, also personal reasons. I think he was sick in that time, um, some of the commentators say. Um, anyway, what he wrote then, these writings later were gladly used by the Nazis, this is centuries later, of course, uh, to legitimize their discrimination of Jews in the 1930s, even getting part of the German church in that time uh, on board. And later, of course, they were um, legitimizing the Holocaust with that. 
But really, anti-Semitism has always existed, even in biblical times. I mean, remember um, the story of Esther and, and Haman. Haman's hate and disgust for the Jews was uh, set him out on, on a plan to, uh, to wipe them off uh, of the earth, to, to kill all of them. And we see this also further down in, in biblical history. Jews in the Roman Empire were despised. And somehow the church through the centuries also took on a very shamefully hateful attitude towards these people. And today, now that the nation of Israel is rege- re- uh, reacting against uh, really the, the biggest mass murder of Jews since the Holocaust, we also see people not just standing up for the Palestinians or the Palestinian cause, emphasizing their rights, but really also we see an, a, um, an expression of deep-seated hate against Jewish people that goes much further than siding with the Palestinians in the conflict. Somehow, and I cannot put this to words adequately, somehow this shows that indeed there is still a special place for the Jews in God's plan. I cannot in any other way explain this ongoing force of anti-Semitism without the activity of God's opposer, the Satan, to be behind this. The Satan is clearly trying to frustrate God's plans and come against the people that our God has still a very special relationship with. And based on what Paul is saying here in Romans 11, the church's relationship to the Jewish people should contain two things. First, a genuine love and appreciation for their role in the history of redemption. All of your Bible is written by ethnically Jewish people. Most of biblical history plays out in the land. Jesus himself was a Jewish rabbi. In the last centuries, something, and the last couple of centuries, mostly last century actually, something has shifted inside the church towards a deeper awareness of the Jewish roots of the church and the Jewishness or the Hebrewness of Scripture and the Jewishness of Jesus. And most of this is just so good and so important. During the 20th century, many theologians began to realize how far like the Christ of dogma was removed from Jesus of Nazareth, the Jewish rabbi. And deep research into the historic Jesus was a big part of the development of kingdom theology, a tradition that Vineyard as a church movement um, stands um, firm in. It helped us to see that Jesus really was a Jewish Messiah uh, that was so long expected. The fulfillment of... um, the whole preparation and the the prophetic expectation of the Old Testament. Secondly, we should look forward to and work for a future revival among Jewish people. Paul states that uh, he believes that the Jewish rejection of the Messiah has led to many Gentiles becoming part of God's people. Their acceptance as God's people then should make the Jewish people who also know Yahweh but do not know Yeshua, do not know Jesus, it should make them jealous. Our relationship with God through Jesus should interest them and bring them back in. And really, the church in 2,000 years of church history has done a lousy job at this to say the least. So, and this is also a little bit me, if you feel that some people are maybe overemphasizing and uh, overappreciating the uh, Jewish roots of uh, Jesus or uh, the Jewish identity uh, and find it important uh, and, and want to celebrate the Jewish feasts and, and uh, all kinds of stuff that, that, that connect to that. If you feel that that's too much, maybe it's good to see that in the context of the shameful history that the church carries and perhaps see that as um, that there needs to be some compensation anyway. So even if it's not your thing, even if it's not your style, let's not judge how other people see this and how other people do this because we're we're due some overcompensation. All right. Lastly, on this part, yeah, I'm, I'm 
almost halfway. Yeah, <laughs> guys are doing so well. Um, lastly, on this part, on the on the on the um, Israel as a as a people, I will give you a biblical analogy for understanding our relationship to Israel. And so I'm going to turn to the uh, parable of the prodigal son. So you know the story. A father has two sons, and uh, the older one and the younger one. And the younger one at some point says, "Father, uh, basically." I wish you were dead. Could you please give me my part of the inheritance and I'm going to split and I'm going to spend it and I'm going to live happily ever after. And the father says, okay, um, here you go. And the younger son splits, spends all the money, wastes it on liquor and what else and um, hits rock bottom, realizes, you know, servants in the house of my father are even better off than I am now. So he returns with the whole speech prepared, the father comes running to him, embraces him, brings him back, uh, back in, can't even finish his speech, and he is fully accepted again as a son. Meanwhile, uh, back at the ranch, the older son is somewhere in the field, and he hears this party, and he is disgusted uh, to hear that his younger brother that betrayed you know, the family has been welcomed back in, and he's complaining to his father, like, I was never able, like you uh, butchered uh, the, the fat cow for this party. And I never was able to even slaughter a goat for, to share with my friends. And, you know, it, why are you doing this? He has a lot of questions. And he's jealous about the, uh, he's jealous of the younger son. And the father responds to him. He says, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was, it was fitting to celebrate and to be glad for this uh, brother of yours was dead and is now alive and he was lost and he's now found. Now, this is where the story ends. This is an, an open ending story, which makes it even more brilliant. And the question remains, what will happen now? How will the older son respond? And what will the younger son do next? Many have pointed out that it wasn't just a younger son that was lost. That was uh, a prodigal means that he is wasting everything. It's also called the, the, the lost son. That it's not just a younger son that was lost in his sin, but also the older son was lost in his self-righteousness. And both sons in this story did not understand the true heart of the father and both needed to come home to him. Now, the story has this open ending, and I think there's an invitation here. So allow me to um, um, kind of put some meaning uh, uh, into, uh, uh, onto this, kind of use this as a framework. What if the younger son, and this actually makes a lot of sense, it could have been Jesus' whole intent with the story. What if the younger son is the, uh, the Gentiles, the nations that had been so far removed from God for so many years that God disinherited, some theologians say. And when they come back to the Father and are accepted back in as a son, the older son, which could represent the Jewish people, is looking at it with jealousy and from a place of self-righteousness, who also did not get the heart of the Father, but kind of sticks, you know, I've always been faithful, I've always kept it like your law, but now you're accepting him back in, but what about me? And so we could see that older son that's grumpy and in the field complaining to the father, perhaps, is the Jewish people. Now I think, okay, the story has an open ending, but what if this would happen? What, wouldn't the, the most beautiful ending of this be that the younger son would take a break from his little party, go out into the field to the older brother and say, hey, you're missing out on the party. Why don't you come? Why don't you come back home? Because we both need to really understand the heart of the father. Yeah? What if the younger brother, the Gentile church, would go out into the field to invite the older brother, the Jewish people, to also come to the party? We'll get back to this at the end of the, when I'm wrapping it all up. Um, now let's discuss the land. And this is where it gets more complicated and more difficult. In the 20th century, for a large part in response to European uh, anti-Semitism, 
there grew a desire among the Jewish people to create a Jewish state, again, where they could be safe, where they could live together. Since the year 135 AD, most Jews, most, had been exiled from the land and were never able to return again. All the way up until the 20th century, small Jewish communities did remain in the land, uh, but most people were spread among Europe. And for all this time, the Jews in the diaspora had kept their Jewish culture and their Jewish identity even through many centuries of discrimination and persecution in Europe. And they always had remained, there always remained a hope to one day return to the land. And so when the English, through the Balfour Declaration, uh, there came an opportunity to create a Jewish state in the historic land of Israel again, that was now called Palestine, many thousands moved from all over the world to see this dream come true. But what was a dream come true for the one people is now also seen as the beginning of a nightmare for another people because many were already living in the land uh, and we now call them Palestinians. And they also had lived there for many generations. They also had a strong historic connection uh, to this land for many reasons. And this people, the Palestinians, also included uh, and still includes a significant number of Christians who also experience a deep connection to the land where Jesus had walked and where biblical history had played out. And they see themselves actually as a um, coming from the church of, of Pentecost all the way back to the church of Pentecost of a Christian presence in the land and in Jerusalem. And for the first part of the 20th century, um, as the many centuries before, they could live side by side in peace, although tension did begin to grow as more and more Jewish immigrants arrived. And after the British mandate over Palestine ended, tension rose even more and was escalating into, like, it, it became an escalating cycle of violence. And then when 14 May 1948 came, the Israelis now celebrate as their Independence Day, as the creation of the State of Israel. This declaration led the surrounding countries, I think even the next day, that's Egypt, Lebanon, uh, Syria, Iraq, and Jordan, to attack Israel. This war is bloody, ugly, and includes many massacres on both sides. Israel won the war and was able to expand its territory. And this is what the Palestinians now refer to as the Nakba, as the catastrophe. Because during the years 1947 to 1949, 700,000 Palestinians were displaced uh, and prevented from ever turning back. Palestinians fled to what we now know as the Gaza Strip, uh, then under the rule of Egypt, and to the West Bank, which was then under the rule of Jordan. And many of the Palestinians that fled still to this day carry a house key of the house that they left behind around their neck. What we must know is in the same time, Jewish refugees uh, came in from Arab countries where they were um, um, chased out of their homes and they made it into the, uh, the newly formed state of Israel. Now, as I'm giving this quick overview of a time in history and there's many conflicts and wars to follow. Um, what we must understand is that there's history does not contain of facts, but of narratives. And so what I just tried to do is give a sort of two-sided overview, but super lacking. Um, when you hear about history, usually you'll hear it about it from um, one side. Actually, as I was preparing this message and I was asking for feedback, first I got the response, hey, what your, the overview of history that you're giving here is very pro-Palestinian. You should add this and that. And so I did. And then others said, hey, the overview of history that you're giving there is very pro-Israeli. And I'm like, this is exactly, <laughs> this, this is very helpful feedback because this is exactly what is going on. History does not seem to contain of just facts, but of narratives, of stories. And what we must understand is that both of these narratives, both of these views of history are existing side by side and both are true because both are the experienced reality of two different people. 
yeah, a, a dream come true and a nightmare come true, both seem to be true because both are the experienced reality of um, people that are living in the land. What we know for sure is that the Nakba forever changed the Palestinian way of life and left a mark on the identity of the Palestinians. Now, more wars came, the Six-Day War in 1967. Um, then I, I, I here it's started by Jordan, but that's also debated who started what and why. And pff, man, um, Jordan who held the West Bank, Egypt who held the Gaza Strap, also won by Israel. And so Israel took control over the West Bank and over the Gaza Strap. And those areas have lived under military occupation ever since. While Palestinians do hold on to uh, a sort of their own rule over these areas. Now, and since this time, and really for the last full century, there have been many eruptions of violence. There have been peace processes that never completely worked out. Violations of agreements and simply ongoing tensions, ongoing concerns ongoing terrorism, ongoing hate, ongoing segregation, ongoing non-peace. In more recent years, Israel began to expand their control in the West Bank uh, by building settlements in areas that was agreed to be Palestinian territories. And they now experience, they, the Palestinians there, seem to experience life there as second-class citizens in a land that they also have centuries-long historical connections to. And in the last 20 years, in the Gaza Strip, a jihadistic group called Hamas uh, came up and came into power and seems to be using its international funding to only violently resist Israel, wanting nothing less than the complete destruction of the state of Israel. <sighs> now, some say, and this I find just interesting, you know, there's never been a, a state of Palestine, so why should there be one now? It's a fair point. But I'm wondering why the very statement, which is true, is not said with a little bit more compassion of, you know, there's never been a Palestinian state. We look at people groups around the world that has never had their own state and seem to be left out or discriminated in their uh, countries of like, oh, like, man, what to do about them? Because they're you know, people as well that deserve their own rule. And, and so we, we pray for them. We want the best for them, even though we don't understand history and, and everything, but we, we want justice. So why not with the Palestinians? Because they're Muslims? Because they're in the way of our favorite Christian touristic attractions? That's, that can't be right. That can't be right. We must think about this in a, in a, in a, in a nuanced and in a, in a right way. And I don't claim to have the right way, by the way. When you hear about the cry of the Palestinian Christians who have a deep sense of historic connection to the land, they say we, you can trace our history of, of Christian presence here back to the Church of Pentecost. You hear their cry why the church in the West almost never seems to step up for their rights and acknowledges their pain and their relevance in this whole conflict. You're wondering, what, how, how are we looking at this in the right way? In the current conflict, Israel is responding against a terrorist organization that has just massacred 1,200 Israelis in the most cruel way. And so this terrorist organization... It's not only a threat to Israel, but also holds the Palestinian people that live in Gaza captive. They're doing injustices to them um, as well. And it's now evidenced uh, that they are hiding in hospitals and that they uh, and other important places where civil civilians live. They're literally using them as a human shield, sacrificing them for their own evil cause. Since Hamas took over uh, control of the Gaza Strip, it seems that they've been doing nothing for its people, but only prepared for an all-or-nothing war with Israel out of pure hate and pure evil. Their extreme violence is the result of their jihadistic ideology, and there's no justification for it. Commenting on how exactly Israel should respond to this right now, and if it's worth it, how they're 
combating Hamas right now and the toll of civilians that it takes. You know what? I'm not going to say anything about it because it's way above my pay grade. I don't know. Um, we can give all kinds of comments and ideas, but I, I, I really don't think I should. However, when it comes to the ongoing conflict, I think there should be a lot more nuance in how we discuss it. We do need to realize that much of the violent uprisings of Palestinians throughout the years, throughout many decades, really also is a result of how the Israelis have treated them, which includes ethnic violence, which includes uh, cleansings, uh, continuing expansion into Palestinian territories, military occupation, discrimination, just simply ongoing injustice. This seems to go much further than only protecting their own people and borders, and it fuels the hate and the desperation among many Palestinians, which creates the soil then for increasing violent responses. But instead of elaborate political commentary on the conflict, which is important and which is necessary, perhaps our focus as the ambassadors of the kingdom of God, our main response should be one of prayer. And I've thought about this a lot. A framework for how we can pray for this situation. A framework that will help us to not only pray, but also envision what the result of that prayer would look like. As God's people, as ambassadors of the kingdom, our main prayer is this. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So I want to attempt to answer, what does it look like when God's kingdom comes in this situation, in Israel-Palestine? What does it look like when God's kingdom comes? And the short answer there is, it looks like peace. Not ceasefire, peace. The end of violence, the end of hate on both sides. And a way that Israelis and Palestinians can live side by side in the land. And if that's in a one state or a two state or a five state, that's beyond me really. Psalm 122 verse 6 says this. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now this seems like such an impossible and unrealistic prayer to pray for because peace is so far away. How would this ever happen? How would peace come to Israel-Palestine? What would it actually look like when peace comes to Jerusalem in this time? A few things. First, reconciliation. Reconciliation happens when people on both sides of the conflict learn to listen to and appreciate each other's stories and histories and narratives. And this is currently happening, this has been happening for quite a while, where Messianic Jews and Palestinian Christians are leading the way in this, are reconciling together and together pray for their land and for their people and acknowledge the stories, acknowledge the theological differences and the, the histories and the, and the narratives, but really come together to, to reconcile and together pray for their land and for their people. I can really recommend this one book, uh, Through My Enemy's Eyes, in which a Messianic Jew and a Palestinian Christian together de describe the, the history of the ongoing conflict, theological debates, and also describe what they do um, in terms of reconciliation. I was listening to an interview the other day with a Jewish rabbi. I'm not sure if he's also a Christian. I don't, and it, that didn't really come out. It doesn't really matter. Uh, it doesn't matter, but okay. <laughs> I get tired of myself. Um, I was listening to an interview with a Jewish rabbi who lives as a settler in the West Bank. And as he, he described that he was listening to the stories of the Palestinians that he lived so close to, yet so segregated from, and he began to realize, he, he described in this way, he had to make space in his heart for both his own story and their story. He had to make space in his heart for his dream come true, but also their pain and, and the reality of the pain and the injustice that had been done to them. 
Reconciliation really is the first key to peace. Secondly, justice. When the kingdom of God comes, it comes in justice. Justice for those who are oppressed, justice for those who are suffering, justice for those who are displaced, justice for those who are held in captivity, justice for those who are being mistreated and fall victim to the powers at play in this ongoing conflict. Peace can only come when justice also comes. Something I've left out of the message because of time. How are we doing on time? We're doing all right on time. I'm nearing the end. Um, something I've not really put into the message, I was gonna, but I left it out, is, is land theology. Um, which, is, which, which is at play, but I, I decided to leave it out. Um, this is something that stood out from my reading, is that God's original land promises to the, uh, the Hebrews, the people of Israel, came with very, very clear instructions to be a nation of justice. Actually, God said, it is my land. I care for it. You get to live in it. And he then gave the condition that this is the original Mosaic promise uh, to Joshua. He gave with the condition, you have to be a people of justice. You have to do justice, not only for your own people, but also for the foreigners that are residing amongst you. Their land promise came on the condition that they would be a people of justice. Hmm. And I just pray, and this is just a prayer, that as the Israeli army will probably defeat Hamas completely in Gaza, that they would also do justice to the people of Gaza that live there and help them, help them to rebuild their homes, provide the necessary care, and not turn Gaza into an open-air prison again, which will then again be the soil for another terror movement to come up. I pray that justice will be done on the West Bank and that something will shift both in the Israeli and in the Palestinian authorities that they can work together to improve life conditions for everybody. Lastly, what are we praying for when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? We're praying for revival. When we pray for the Middle East, we need to realize that ultimately none of this is going to happen unless the Prince of Peace, Jesus, Isa, Yeshua, is recognized as the Messiah King and people receive a transformation of their cold and stony hearts into hearts that are soft and responsive to God's guidance. And then this brings me full circle back to Jesus' instructions to the disciples at the Ascension. The finger theologian Derek Morphew believes that as the gospel is going around the world, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the very ends of the earth, it will finally make its way back to Jerusalem again. And as it's waking, making its way back, where will it go through? It's not difficult. Uh, it's the Arab world. <laughs> if, it's, if it's going from the ends of the earth, like Japan and New Zealand and Alaska and the south of Argentina, if it's coming back from the ends of the earth, where the gospel has you know, gone to, when it's going to make its way back to Jerusalem, it will inevitably have to go through the Arab or the Muslim world. So Derek Morphy says this, the last great missionary thrust will therefore be amongst the Arabs. And once this is completed and the gospel will have circumvented the globe, finally, ethnic Israel in Israel-Palestine and throughout the diaspora will turn to Christ and this will then lead to the second coming and the resurrection of the dead. The mission to Israel will only be ultimately successful when it comes via the Arabs. So if you want to win Israel, win the Arabs. God loves mankind everywhere with the same redeeming love. I want to ask the worship team to come, uh, come up as I'm finishing up. Of the disciples, therefore, um, at Jesus' ascension were asking, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? 
And Jesus' response is, it's not for you to know what will happen exactly and how this will all play out. But I'm sending you out with this good news of the kingdom. Spread this message to Jerusalem, to the Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And as soon as Jesus ascended into heaven, angels began talking to the disciples about his return. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come and in the same way as uh, you saw him, uh, sorry, he will come in the same way as you saw him going into heaven. This puts his mission for the disciples in the context of his return. We have a mission to prepare the world for Jesus' return through the expansion of the kingdom. And now that the gospel has indeed reached the far ends of the earth, let's pray that it, um, let's pray and work for it that in such a way it will also make its way back to Jerusalem. Amen. Can we stand up? And get to a, a response to uh, what I've shared. I hope it's been helpful to you. I hope it's been been uh, good. I hope um, it's it's helped you to look at this situation with with the nuance and from a kingdom perspective. What I want to do as we're going to sing the song that I find so beautiful in this time and in the, and and to sing over this situation. It's called uh, Yeshua, it's the, the Jewish name of Jesus, and it includes a a prayer of the uh, of the Lord's prayer of Your kingdom come, Your will be done, or Yours is the kingdom, Yours is the power. And so I want to invite us all to sing that as a as a prayer, as a prayer of peace over Jerusalem, as a prayer of peace over the situation. Peace being not a ceasefire, but a complete sense of peace where reconciliation and justice and revival come. Can we do that as a church in this time? And after that, I'll come and lean to the uh, next part of the service and prayer response. <laughs>